This is Carol Foster of 2 Timothy 2.15 Resources, and I am so excited that you're going to join me today as we study God's Word. The response new Messianic believers give when asked why they initially visited a Messianic congregation is, we knew there had to be more. As we study together, we will begin to see that yes, indeed, there has to be more. For additional study aids to assist you in studying along with us, go to our website, sectim.org. Welcome back. In our last time together, we had begun our study of the tenth plague that Yahweh had brought against Egypt. This is found in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 11. We had divided this section of scripture into three parts. Section 1, the review of the plans for the final plague and the enrichment of the Israelites, verses 1 through 3. Section 2 was verses 4 through 8, the announcement of the final decisive plague to Pharaoh. And finally, section 3, verses 9 through 10, the review of Pharaoh's prior history of resistance to the Exodus. We had just completed our study of the first section, verses 1 through 3. However, I want to read this first section so that we can remain in context before continuing on to our next section. Remember, we had titled this section The Review of Plans for the Final Plague and the Enrichment of the Israelites. Again, this is found in verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Moses, One more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that each man ask from his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Furthermore, the man Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. We found that verses 1 through 3 are clearly presumption, referring in summary fashion, not word for word, but conceptually, to what Yahweh had told Moshe earlier in our study of chapter 3, verses 19 through 22 of Shemot, and then again in chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. Yahweh was going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and that he would not listen to Moshe's demand to let my people go. Yahweh was then going to bring such a plague upon Pharaoh and the land of Egypt that the Israelites would be not only released from captivity, but they would also go out with gold, silver, and many other supplies given to them by the Egyptians. We need to remember that not only was the purpose of the plagues to cause Pharaoh to let the Israelites go, but as we have previously discovered, there were two other reasons for them as well. We find these clearly stated in chapter 9, verses 13 through 16, which is the account of the plague of hail. These verses state, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning, and stand before Pharaoh, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send 
all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this reason I have allowed you to remain, in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. The two reasons were, first, it was so that Pharaoh and the Egyptians would know that there was no one like Yahweh in all the earth. And the second reason was in order to show his power and in order to proclaim his name through all the earth. The purpose of the plagues, again, was not only to compel Pharaoh to let the Israelites go, but it was also to have Pharaoh and the Egyptians know that Yahweh was the one true God and there was no one like him in all the earth. We then see that his purpose even extended beyond the Egyptians. He then stated that his purpose was also to include having his name proclaimed through all the earth. In our focal passages, Shemot chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, we now find that at least Moshe knew that the final plague was at hand and the long series of announcements, warnings, plagues, and refusals by Pharaoh was coming to an end. Pharaoh and the Egyptians had indeed been humiliated many times over. Yahweh had shown them repeatedly that it was he who had true power and that their own gods were ineffective nothings. Now was the time for the ultimate demonstration of his sovereignty in the form of a punishment of such magnitude that Pharaoh would certainly not merely allow the Israelites to leave Egypt, but would require that they do so. In the latter part of verse 1, Yahweh tells Moshe, When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. In verses 2 and 3, we discovered that these verses bring to the reader's attention a sense of psychological distance that had developed between Pharaoh and the rest of the Egyptians, something that a casual reader may not have fully appreciated previously, although evidences of it were certainly already mentioned in earlier portions of the story. Anyone with one ounce of sense among the Egyptians had long since realized that resistance to the Israelites' God, Yahweh, was useless. Indeed, the Egyptians in general had come to respect the Hebrews, presumably part out of fear and partly out of practicality, and saw their Pharaoh's policy of continued resistance to the Exodus for what it was, a fanatical, destructive, hopeless stance that was doing nothing but harm. The virtually uniform consensus among the Egyptians was that the Israelites were entitled to leave Egypt and that their God had shown himself fully capable of ruining the country if they were not allowed to do so. The only person who could not yet see this was Pharaoh 
because Yahweh had blinded him to reason as a punishment for his oppressions and as a means of demonstrating his divine power over the greatest human potentate of that era. The Egyptians' attitude toward the Israelites was not entirely a simply matter of normal human reasoning. Yahweh's plan was to provide his people with the financial wherewithal to survive as a nation on the move until they arrived at and settled in Canaan. So he supernaturally influenced the Israelites' Egyptian neighbors to give them valuables simply for the asking and caused them to think highly of Moshe as well. This was in direct opposition to the increasing bitterness Pharaoh was displaying toward him. As we move on to the next section of this chapter, verses 4 through 8, we find the announcement of the final decisive plague to Pharaoh. Moshe said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I am going out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before, and shall never be again. But against any of the sons of Israel a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these, your servants, will come down to me and bow themselves before me, saying, Go out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. I want to look at each of these verses separately. At this point in the chapter, the retrospective summary review of verses 1 through 3 has ended, and the reader's attention is once again drawn to the scene of Moshe before Pharaoh. Moshe introduced his words with a typical messenger formula. This is what the Lord says. So that Pharaoh had no doubt that Moshe again was speaking as a prophet the words given to him by his God. It is interesting that Yahweh announced here that he would personally move through Egypt to bring about the death of the Egyptian firstborn. I am going out into the midst of Egypt. This personal involvement of Yahweh represents a further heightening of the severity of the plagues. We've seen that previously Yahweh had caused all the plagues, but in the case of those plagues caused by insects, Yahweh had produced the insects and they had gone throughout the land doing the intended harm. Now Yahweh himself was the immediate performer of the plague, the immediate visitor of the homes of the Egyptians. The further descriptions of the actual plague as it was carried out in chapter 12 emphasizes Yahweh's direct role several more times, although with the addition of somewhat puzzling reference to the destroyer, as we'll see in chapter 12, verse 23. 
Why did Yahweh announce that the deaths would occur at about midnight? The answer can have nothing to do with the modern concept of beginning a new day at midnight because the ancients tended to begin the day at either dawn or dusk. In the case of the Israelites, day began at dusk due to the creation order. As we can read in the book of Bereshit, or Genesis, this reinforced by the logical reckoning that when one day was coming to an end, and another must therefore be starting. Yahweh, however, stated specifically that this event would occur about midnight. The concept of midnight in the ancient world was the deepest, darkest time of night, the point during the night when the most people were likely to be asleep, since people tended to retire to bed at dusk, and the time of greatest vulnerability and defenselessness. Thinking of the events of the plague from the point of view of the mercies of Yahweh, causing the death of so many Egyptians was indeed a severe punishment, but allowing them to die quietly in their sleep was an act of grace. The great cry predicted in verse 6 was not the cry of pain during death, but the crying of grief at the morning's discovery of the dead in virtually every household. Three questions naturally arise related to these verses. Our first question would be, Was Yahweh fair to kill the firstborn of families all over Egypt when by this time it was mainly the Egyptian king who was still resisting Yahweh's demands on behalf of Israel? Another way of stating this question would be, Why not kill Pharaoh rather than his firstborn and all the other firstborn thus directly punishing the one person most guilty of sin against Yahweh. Our second question is, why kill the firstborn of cattle as well? And our third question, would families with only girls escape the devastation of this plague, since many of our translations say explicitly, firstborn son? I want us to be able to answer each one of these questions. Let's begin with our first question. Was Yahweh fair to kill the firstborn of families all over Egypt when by this time it was mainly the Egyptian king who was still resisting Yahweh's demands on behalf of Israel? Why not kill Pharaoh rather than his firstborn and all the other firstborn, thus directly punishing the one and only person most guilty of sin against Yahweh? The answer to this first question is virtually impossible to state simply or briefly because it involves an understanding of the nature of Yahweh in relation to his wrath and justice. Yahweh does a great many things that remain beyond human understanding because human intellect is far too limited to allow for appreciation of the entire complexity of Yahweh's overall eternal plan for his universe, and for each individual in it. Nevertheless, it would seem reasonable to suggest that, first of all, Pharaoh was hardly the only guilty party in the oppression of the Israelites. His orders had to be carried out throughout the entire land, and this required the willing cooperation of his own court officials, regional administrators, 
military general officers, and lesser officers, as well as civilians of all ranks and types. Second, the judgment of Yahweh displayed in all the plagues was more than merely an act of retribution. It was also a definitive display of his superiority to all other gods, that is, false gods, for the benefit of all seekers of the truth throughout all subsequent history, as we read earlier, that it was to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. We will see, as we continue our study, that this will again be emphasized. Additionally, the fact that innocent people had died in the general pattern of the implementation of this plague is not a unique sort of phenomenon. Consider specifically the very young firstborn children who presumably played no conscious, purposeful role in opposing or enslaving Yahweh's people. How is their situation materially different from innocents who die in natural disasters that happen often around the world today and throughout history? In other words, the mercy and fairness of Yahweh's actions in the case of the tenth plague on the Egyptians is a subset of the question of the mercy and fairness of Yahweh in all his dealings in a fallen world corrupted by original sin. Those who, from our limited point of view, tend to be regarded as innocent are regularly the victims of disastrous and even fatal circumstances and events. We trust a wise and loving God relative to their eternal destiny, but we certainly cannot deny that they suffer unfairly and unevenly in a world that is subject to such unfairness as a result of human sin. The answer to our second question of why the plague should involve killing the firstborn of cattle as well as humans finds its answer in the fact that in most of human history there has been a close symbiotic relationship between cattle and humans and therefore cattle who shared the six-day creation order with humans were deeply appreciated in ancient times. Thus a full humiliation of Pharaoh and of the Egyptians would naturally be expected to include the death of the firstborn of cattle. And finally, let's address our third question as to whether families with only female children escape the effects of this plague. The answer is surely no. The New International Version translation as well as other various translations of the Bible translate the Hebrew word bakar as firstborn And this is potentially misleading. Although that is what we've been taught since our early days in Sunday school. Well, I discovered something very interesting as I studied this section of scripture. Although many of our Bibles translate these verses to state that it was only the firstborn sons that died, I went back to the original text and it does not say firstborn sons. It clearly states in the Hebrew, All the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of the beasts. 
I personally think that the New American Standard Bible is probably the best translation to use when you're studying. There's absolutely nothing wrong with any other Bible that is a translation for studying. Again, however, the New American Standard Bible is my preferred study Bible. We see this mistranslating of firstborn son confirmed by the statement in chapter 12, verse 30, There was not a house without someone dead. A relatively explicit indication that daughters as well as sons were taken from their families. All sectors of society were to experience the plague, as indicated by the inclusion of the firstborn of Pharaoh, that is, the highest, then the firstborn of the slave girl at her handmill, that is, the servant girl who had the menial job of grinding the grain and was thus a representative of the lowest class in the society, then to the cattle, who were surely not on the same scale of life value as the humans, but whose inclusion showed that all humans, no matter how low or how high their estate, were included. As we move on to verse 6, we find the words great cry is a term used by Yahweh as well in chapter 3, verses 7 and verse 9 to describe the groaning and or crying out of the Israelites from the miseries of their horrific slave work. Here then is a predicted and drastic turning of the tables so that it would be all Egyptians instead of all Israelites who would cry out and for an even greater suffering. The term sechah could theoretically connote either wailing in the sense of an expression of grief or the part of those who receive bad news or the sound made by those dying from the plague. In the present instance, however, it almost surely referred to the reaction of families to the discovery that during the night an oldest child had died in bed. Again, as a parallel use of the term in 1230 confirms loud wailing, for there was not a house without someone dead. The prediction of worse wailing than there has ever been or will ever be again is a statement hard to refute. Egyptians might have participated in mass national times of mourning for various reasons at prior times in their history, but surely there would have been no parallel to the kind of sudden loss of life that Yahweh had predicted here. As in several preceding plague accounts, Moshe reported Yahweh's intention to differentiate completely between the Egyptians and the Israelites in the suffering, as we read in verses 7 of this chapter. Again, I am reading from the New American Standard Bible. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. In Bible times, the dog was the least of the animals in terms of desirability or importance because it was a dirty, unwelcome scavenger animal, its reputation being somewhat akin to that of a rat in modern times. To say that not even a dog would bark in an Israelite was a simple, graphically idiomatic way of saying that the Israelites humans and cattle would simply see no harm whatever from the tenth plague. 
Well, we're out of time for this session. Please join me next time as we learn more about this tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. You can listen to this session or any of the previous sessions of our current study, an overview of the Tanakh, at www.hebrewnationonline. Torah teaching, there has to be more. Thank you for studying with us today. And if you would like additional study aids or other resources, please go to my website, www.sectim.org. There I have downloadable study sheets as well as other reference materials. Shalom. Thank you for joining us today as we delved into the beautiful truths of God's Word to indeed discover that there has to be more. I pray that the Word applied to your daily life will bring a deeper understanding of His love letter written just to you. Let me remind you that we have additional study aids to assist you with our studies together on our website, sectim.org. May this day fill you with the love of God, joy, and shalom, nothing missing, nothing broken in your life.